Good day, and welcome to the Frontline Chatter podcast. My name is Jarian Gibson with co-host Roy Monahan, our special guest co-host, Roy Monahan. Um, how are you doing today, Roy? I'm doing great, Jarian. Thanks again for having me. Had a great few days off for the holidays and back and raring to go. Excited to be involved again today. Well, thank you for, once again, Roy, for coming on and, and being our special guest co-host. Uh, we always enjoy having you on the Frontline Chatter podcast. Um, we also like to say to our listeners, you know, Happy New Year, and we hope you had a uh, happy holidays. Um, I'm very excited to talk about our next guest coming up. Um, you know, someone who I've known through the CTP program and PTech and have presented with, so happy to have him on. So why don't you go ahead and introduce our, our, our uh, guest today, Roy. Sure thing. Uh, we are here today with Patrick Koble. Patrick is an independent security and EUC consultant and as Jarian just said, he's a fellow CTP. Patrick is based in Nashville, Tennessee. It is fair to say that Patrick has a very particular set of skills, skills he acquired over a very long career. And luckily for all of us, he's using his skills to make enterprise IT and VDI in particular more secure. Patrick is involved with his local Citrix user group, and has also been a featured guest speaker on CUGC webinars and at other regions CUGC meetings and Excel events. In 2017, Patrick was a speaker at the renowned DarbyCon event, and soon he will be the man who literally wrote the book on VDI security. So welcome, Patrick. Uh, thanks for coming on today. Thank you for having me. So let's uh, go ahead and uh, jump right in. So kind of tell us about uh, how you got your start in security. Uh, you know, I started uh, back in the late 80s in the AOL days and the BBSs and IRC channels. And I loved when I got my 386DX that uh, I learned how to do all kinds of fun things with pay phones to make free phone calls, uh, along with all the things you could do with Windows and DOS at that time and some of the little hacker programs that came out there. So that was awesome. And, you know, uh, I learned a lot from that. And then I got very, very lucky uh, and got an IT job at 15. I was working at a call center. Um, I got to go to a Microsoft and Nobel Netware prep course at a local college. And I was the floppy disk putter inner outer uh, for Y2K. So I was working on that, putting in floppy disk and a couple hundred computers to try to get the BIOSes ready for Y2K. Uh, then I joined the Marines and got to keep doing some more nerdy stuff there and uh, did two deployments over in Iraq and got out, got a security job at a healthcare company. Um, and then I became kind of the Citrix guy there. And then I was a partner for nine years. And now I've been two years as an independent security EUC nerd. That's a pretty amazing resume. I mean, you've really run the gamut of different types of roles within IT, and you've obviously got over 30 years of experience. You even, it sounds like you did the Inatech type of Y2K uh, prep work in, in there as well. But what does your typical work day involve right now? Yep, uh, I pretty much, I do a lot of work from home. So I'm getting the kids ready, dropping them off at school, doing things like that. Um, and then a lot of documentation. Uh, it's probably what I do more than anything. I actually really enjoy documentation. Every, you know, for an hour of pen testing, there might be two or three hours of documentation and findings and collecting evidences and log files and things like that so that you can make a good report back. So 
I stare a lot at Microsoft Word. It's my bestest friend and Excel. And uh, that's pretty much my day. All right. So, you know, in your day, you know, you focus on EUC today, mainly virtual desktops. Um, you know, like Rory said, and we both mentioned, you know, in the intro that you're a CTP as well. So it, it's kind of interesting that with your background um, that you chose the EUC space to work in. Um, is there a reason why you picked the EUC space out of all the different areas of security that you could have gone into? Yeah, uh, I think I really became an accidental, you know, Citrix admin, just like Carl Webster. Uh, I saw WinFrame at that call center back in 1997. I saw it when I was in the Marines uh, and in my first job out of the Marines um, at the healthcare company. Uh, it just kind of happened. Uh, I was constantly telling the secure, the Citrix guys that they needed to patch their uh, Metaframe XP servers, Windows 2000. And I said, I'll just patch it myself. And I worked with them, got them patched. And then I kind of became the Citrix guy there. And then I moved into Citrix Partner. And then it's kind of just accelerated uh, the EUC VDI from VMware View and everything. So, but I always love breaking into things and I get still get to do it. And so if I get to do it with a VDI twist, it's kind of fun. So you're very much a unicorn. You have a very unique mix of skills, uh, not just security, but you have a deep knowledge of EUC. Many larger enterprise organizations have dedicated InfoSec teams, but the people on those teams rarely have a background or deep knowledge of EUC. Do you see that as a risk? I definitely see it as a risk. And, uh, I, you know, my kind of career kind of revolves around that risk and mitigating that risk and, you know, identifying that risk. So I think in a many cases, the VDI deployment has become kind of a, a glass house, a very special place uh, where normal security things don't happen. And that's because the application was in the driver's seat when it was time to, to be deployed. And during that deployment, they determined what they needed. So if it was a local admin request, it just happened. So when it's time to come back, the security team in some cases doesn't scan those devices. They don't look for those devices because all they do is get bad reports from them. So they become a glass house that has tinted windows. So you know there's something going on in there from the InfoSec team, but you don't know exactly. Um, but, you know, I've seen a lot of deployments that have had lots of risk for that. And, you know, most people are putting their most important applications inside that virtual desktop deployment. And you have a huge risk sitting there. It's all centralized and happy. Um, and if you're publishing a browser or email client, you know, you're at danger close for sure. I mean, you're one click away from some bad things happening without some good controls and policies in place. So I think it is a big risk. Um, and the InfoSec team and the VDI and EUC teams need to, you know, have some regular meetings and tempos. So, you know, with, with you being, you know, around VDI and security, you know, what, what challenges do you see based on, you know, virtual desktops and virtual apps, you know, compared to traditional physical endpoints, you know, and physical desktops? Yeah, I think the thing that I see is probably image management is probably the main problem that I see um, because of the non-persistency, the GUID monsters and stuff like that. And so it starts getting treated differently than those physical PCs. And that's because, just like we talked about before, sometimes those whole virtual desktop deployments get excluded from scanning and compliance reporting 
because they're always so far behind or there's a reason why they're not patched or they never can get be patched for whatever reason because it'll break this or break that. And the PCs just get more attention. Um, and the VDI admins, we're just trying to keep our heads down and keep the thing running. And it, since it gets treated special, uh, it, it, it doesn't get the same thing. So that's why I'm sometimes, you know, AV is out of date, not configured correctly or not on there at all because they think since it's non-persistent, there's no risk there. Whereas if you're publishing anything you care about, there's definitely risk. So you mentioned a key point here about non-persistent and, um, you know, a lot of security conscious organizations, especially larger enterprises, it always seems like there's a, a big hurdle between non-persistent and security, especially to where if there's a breach and they need some kind of logs or forensics, forensics or any kind of past data. Um, so what are your thoughts on, on that with non-persistent and if there's a breach about going through and, and how to find that information but still be secured in a non-persistent environment. Yeah, that, that comes back to logging. That's, that's a tough part. And there's so many, I've been involved in a couple incident responses when I showed up and there was an attack and we're trying to go through and figure out what happened uh, that we can't figure out what happened because the logs have already rolled off. Um, and there was no Windows event log forwarding if it was a VMware deployment or there was no event logs saved to the right cache drive in a PBS image. So there's no Windows logs that we can really hunt down other than a login event happened on the domain controllers. Um, the next big thing is, you know, another blind spot is that the front doors of your VDI deployments, the F5 APMs, the Citrix ADCs, not having uh, even syslog turned on. So when we log in there, uh, some very large deployments, we missed everything in just a matter of a couple days um, because of thousands and thousands of logins happening. And the logging that it does, it just gets lost in the sauce. And you can't find when someone really logged in. So, uh, you know, and those, and, uh, you know, logging solutions aren't free. Um, there are some that are, and it requires a little elbow grease and effort to do. Uh, but it's well worth the effort, even if you could just do syslog only to begin with, and then eventually join into Windows event log forwarding and stuff like that so that you can actually trace it. Uh, and that non-persistency introduces a lot of challenges for a lot of security products uh, that go into that world because of it not having the same uh, host name every single time and GUIDs and stuff like that. And then uh, I want to jump in again with something here. Um, you mentioned antivirus, and this is always the elephant in the room. So kind of want to get your thoughts on on agent versus agent lists and people in non-persistent running know antivirus. Yeah, yeah. Antivirus is a very, very tough one. Uh, I, I don't think there's one size fits all. Um, depends on where you're at and your AV journey as an organization. But putting it on there, I always recommend – uh, even if it has to be detuned a little bit, because the one thing we're trying to prevent is known bad things from executing. Most AVs can do that. And new bad things from executing. Some AVs can do that. Um, but, you know, application whitelisting and blacklisting can kind of get the same thing done. Um, but the security part has a little bit better flair and reporting, so it may be better. But uh, I always recommend running one. The overhead is still 
can be considerable depending on what solutions you use, but there's a lot of offline and agent-based and uh, host-based scanning and stuff like that. So there's, there's lots of options out there, especially all the fancy whiz-bang ones. So whether users are on physical endpoints or virtual, they tend to use like the browser and email and certain applications more than others. They spend their whole day in certain applications and they expect them to work a certain way. Like they want to use their browser of choice. They don't really want to run into any restrictions that may come with security hardening and locking down certain applications, the desktop or the browser. Do you have advice on how to strike the right balance of secure, but also a good end user experience? Yeah, that's, it's a, it's a tricky answer for sure. Um, you know, I've done a lot of assessments and remediation efforts in a lot of environments. And one thing that I can see on a regular basis is that the older the environment is, the harder it is to do those things. And that is because they've been doing that method for, you know, three to 15 years, right? They have been working this way forever. And now we're telling them that you can't do that. So unvalidated changes can definitely release the Kraken uh, of help desk calls to your help desk. So you got to be very careful. Uh, new environments are a little easier because they never knew you could run, run to map a network drive or click here or do this. Um, it's a very uh, di difficult balancing act. Um, but you, I, what I suggest is that there's lots of policies that can be implemented without really any user disruption. And if there is user disruption, we will have good questions to ask them of why are we doing it this way? Um, and I think you just kind of have to take it in baby steps. Uh, we, you know, application whitelisting is probably the, the best example of that is that if you just have five or 10 applications, it's not too hard to do, but if you have thousands, it's very hard. But I always suggest is clone a user account um, and log in as them. Get the experience as them and find out what they open, how they do things. There's lots of, uh, you know, monitoring solutions that can show you what EXEs they're launching. And start making your whitelist from there. It's going to be like a, a big bag firewall eventually because there's going to be a huge list of things that you're going to allow and disallow. And then there's going to be any, any rule. And that may take a long time to get rid of, but it's worth doing. Uh, so there's lots of group policies that you can start with. Uh, and there's some application whitelisting things. If you know they only open this application, what application does that open is my next question to you. Um, and kind of just dive in there and uh, take chip away at it. So early in your answer there, you mentioned the fact that, you know, if it's in a net new environment or net new build, it tends to be easier. Obviously with Windows 7 uh, end of life coming next year, early next year, it just triggered a thought in my head. Do you think with the vast differences in the UI and just the workflows between Windows 7 and Windows 10, that a Windows 10 migration is a really good time for uh, enterprise organizations to look at security hardening. For sure. Um, you know, I've dealt with this at a couple clients already because Windows 7 and Windows 10 is a huge jump. Just that UI, whether we're talking about Server 2008 R2 and 2016, or we're just faking the funk with a published desktop. Um, that's, that's all fine and dandy, but the UI changes is, 
is so tough to deal with. And the security differences between Windows 7 and Windows 10 can be also cumbersome. Because one thing that I think we all have as nerds is we have like featureitis. We see all these cool features that Windows 10 can do, and we try to turn them on. And some of those features not, may not behave the way you think they will in a virtual desktop deployment. And when we get to Windows 10, we want to make sure, um, you know, I mean, you guys have talked with Policy Pack before, but you want to make sure like that start menu is exactly what they need to do their thing. Nothing else, you know, nothing more than they need. That desktop, there's no extra places for them to right-click or context menus. You want to lock it down because it's your, it's your best chance to do it as you swap to the new operating system. If you, if you go to Windows 10 or Server 2016, look and feel, um, with it unlocked again, you're just going to kind of continue those errors to the next generation of the deployment, and it may take you months to years to fix. Yeah, that's a good thing to point out too about the differences in the OS and and the impact and you know walking a mile in the end user's shoes to make sure that you're seeing what they're seeing as well. Um, and so let's talk about different industries. So you know with with you doing um, some of your pen tests and your security hardening and your <clears throat> your assessments and stuff, you worked across different industries. So which industry or vertical um, does security the best, if any? Yeah, I think uh, banking stands out to me. Uh, very regulated, very secure, especially anybody in the payment card industry with PCI. Um, and then healthcare would be my second choice because those patient records and PHI is a huge risk and a huge burden. And it's also a lot of data. So they usually do a pretty good job. Um, and then the DOD top secret squirrels, those are always pretty good because they have to follow their STIGs and guidelines. Um, and then retail is probably... Uh, in there too. And that's because if that point of sale isn't making any money, then the company isn't making money. And if they happen to have a leak or a breach and it's timed poorly and it's in the holiday season, they may lose 20 to 40% of their revenue. So you always see very good change control and change freeze at large retail organizations because it's how they make their money in those two or three months uh, versus the whole year. Uh, I see state and local governments, they try uh, to be like the DOD side of the world, um, but usually it's just underfund, underfunded is what they suffer from more than anything. What about, um, you know, as a follow-up, what about air-gapped versus non-air-gapped environments? Yeah, yeah. Uh, if you can afford to do air-gapped, it's awesome. Uh, you know, if anybody knows, if anyone's in the insurance business, you know that you're really in the banking business. Uh, so when I say banking, that can be insurance too. There's a couple big insurance companies uh, that I've done work with that they have lots and lots of air-gapped and double-hop and triple-hop DMZs, firewalls, every which way to get to this deployment. Uh, and it's great to see. I can tell you as a Citrix admin, it can be very annoying to work in because you can't really get anything done. Uh, if Citrix changes the SOAP service port on PBS uh, from 54321 to something else, you're going to have a hard time getting it to work. Um, but if you can, there are air gap places um, and insurance and banking is where I see the most of that on top of government. Jerry just mentioned uh, doing your data center pen tests. When you are doing those data center pen tests, or when you have in the past, if you're able to speak about any instance, maybe by, I don't know, removing any 
identifying information. What was the most jaw-dropping security hole or lapse that you encountered? Oh, I've, I've, I've experienced lots of them uh, from, you know, a lot of the times when you're doing a pen test, it's capture the flag, right? And so the flag may be getting domain admin, plugging something into the data center. So when we talk about physical stuff, you know, there's a sticky note on top of the door with the keypad for the code to get into the data center. Uh, the door is actually propped open and it has to be propped open because there's something wrong with the air conditioner and condensation. So you just walk in literally. Um, and so with that, you know, there's lots of interesting ways you can physically get into there. Um, but you know, social engineering is still the best way. Um, it, you know, my favorite thing to do is to wear a vendor shirt, come in all sweaty. I'll spray my face with uh, some water and sometimes I'm just sweaty anyway. Um, and I'll have a static bag with a motherboard in it and say, Hey, I need to get into the data center. Uh, this part's out. This is down. And if you've done your recon on like LinkedIn and then Facebook, uh, you can have a pretty good idea that George is out and you know that George is the IT manager and you know that they're doing stuff and they have Dell computers and things like that. Uh, and you can get in there pretty easy uh, from there. And then lots of stuff open from the outside that people don't think about. Uh, they thought they closed that NAT, that firewall rule, and it's just an RDP server from the 1990s with a RAS connection still open. Uh, so I've still seen that, which kind of amazes me on the you know nerdy side. And then password reuse and credential harvesting and stuffing is just all over the place. Uh, so I use LinkedIn database breach uh, all the time. And sometimes all I have to do is change the password from FastCars2008 to fast cars 2018 and I'm in. And uh, so I, I see that kind of stuff a lot and it even happens to the best of the nerds. And it's because we have so many passwords in our brain, we wanna reuse them. Uh, we don't use password managers like we probably should. Um, but you know, there's been some fun ones where I, you know, I've kind of just walked in and just completely got everything I ever dreamed about and was able to plug in my rubber ducky into the back of the server uh, and, you know, start to get the domain admin credentials. So <laughs> that, <laughs> that, that is some great stuff there. I'm sitting here and, and Roy and I are chatting back and forth as you're talking about how this is gold and about how you're going about doing this. Um, before I go on to the next question to kind of follow up to this, have you gotten to any like sticky or weird situations w when you're doing this kind of stuff? I have been detained. Yes. Sometimes, uh, sometimes things don't go the way. Uh, it should, or you expect in the movies. Uh, so sometimes when you go in somewhere, the security guard will actually be like, hey, no, who, who are you? I've never seen you before. What are you doing? You can't go back. Hey, I'm just working with George. I just got to go upstairs to get this server fixed. Uh, no, no, they always buzz people in. They, you can't go up there. Oh, um, uh, I, I really need to get out of here because uh, this part's down and, you know, the orders are coming in and they're losing money right now. So I've, I've got two more hours to replace this part. Oh, you can, you can wait, you know, just come down here. We'll call them up. Um, so there, there's been some hairy situations when you do get caught or getting caught in the data center is the best um, because I'm just in a random vendor t-shirt uh, opening up server racks, the ones that aren't locked in some cases, which is pretty much all of them. And uh, we're just looking at each other at this weird stare like, Hey, how's it going? Yeah, I'm here to, you know, um, 
go ahead and get the firmware updated on this server, and I just got to plug this in so we can get OpenManage to fire up. And sometimes people actually shake their head, oh, okay, yeah, cool, man. Uh, and then other times, hey, no, you're, we don't update the BIOS and firmware with OpenManage anymore. Uh, so there have been awkward situations uh, with receptionists, security guards, data center people, um, and uh, that'll actually make me sweat again. So it happens. So just you know, I'm I'm, a, I'm sorry I'm stuck I'm stuck on this people. This is actually this is some good stuff here telling us in from your experiences. But um, so usually when you do this stuff, there's some level of management that knows. Um, but usually you know that's it because they're saying, hey, go test our security, go check this out. The people who you're testing against don't know. So you said you were detained. Have they ever called the cops on you? Uh, I've gotten close to the cops. I know a lot of people that have gotten to the cops. Uh, I know it's in my future. Uh, I, the longer I do this, the more likelihood it will happen uh, that the security guard will actually call the cops. Uh, you always carry a get out of jail free card from the customer that's signed by the leadership with the phone number, the email address, contact info of the person in the organization that does know. Um, but sometimes those are not, you know, instant get out of jail free. So sometimes you have to kind of sit there you know, crisscross applesauce and wait for someone to show up from the company and say, oh, yeah, yeah, we're doing a security audit, this guy. And, you know, you don't feel like a super cool hacker anymore because you did not get in. Uh, but, you know, that's part of it. If, if anything, I'd rather be stopped at a lobby uh, than being stopped all the way in the data center, right? Because uh, there's a chance uh, that bad things can happen if you didn't actually question people as they come and go into your building, into your space. Um, I've walked into huge call centers and just sat down on an unlocked computer and just started working on it and no one would say a word, right? Especially in some spaces like that where people come and go. Uh, and I just start working and hacking the planet from there and having a great time checking the internet and, uh, you know, doing the pen test thing, trying to find some domain admin cred somewhere and, um, seeing if internet access is unrestricted. You, you got to start carrying like a, a hidden camera on you too, like like a pinhole cam or like a button camera or something. I, 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 I do. See this stuff. <laughs> I do. I, I, I wear a couple hidden cameras when I do it. Uh, you know, all that footage I really can't ever release based on the client. So maybe one day I can, after a couple of years have went by and security things have been fixed, I can get an okay from a client to make like a compilage of me getting busted or me getting in. Um, there's a famous hacker uh, that I follow a lot and he's a big mentor of mine is uh, Jason Street with a, with a J-A-Y-S-O-N. And he has some of the best stories and video footage and uh, experiences in the penetration testing world. Uh, him and Dave Kennedy are probably, you know, one of the top two people I, I look up to and admire for each one of their technical prowess and their social engineering. But he's walked into banking places and I've, I haven't got to do a bank like this yet, but he walked into a bank office and just said, Hey, are you got a problem printing? Yeah. Uh, can I come back there? I'm here with uh, Dell try to hear, fix this printer. Oh, okay. Yeah. So now he's behind where the tellers are. Oh, okay. Let me uh, just plug this into your computer. See what's going on. Yeah. Hey, hey, Susie, he's here to fix the computer. Hey, my computer's broke too. You know, he heads back there and starts helping them and he's plugging in a rubber ducky and infecting each one of these computers one step at a time. Right. Um, and he's like, Hey, this computer is broke. I'm going to have to take this back to the office to image. Okay. 
So he literally has candid, you know, security cam footage of him behind the teller in this huge bank uh, out, out in the world. I won't disclose where it's at. Um, and him just walking back out with the computer underneath his shoulder. It's, it's amazing. Uh, and this social engineering is probably your number one uh, enemy in a lot of cases. But, you know, there's a lot of people that don't really uh, are not confident using their words. So, uh, you know, so user training is critical for things like this. Yeah, I mean, this is some, some good stuff. And we could probably talk about this all day. But uh, in the interest of time, of, of keep going. Um, you know, let's uh, kind of keep things flowing here. Um, so you talk about, you know, companies have a breach. It, it goes public. They get criticized for having a situation. Um, do you have an example you can think of or a company that gets it right? Yeah, I think there's different levels of right. Um, I can't go into a couple things that I've worked on because, you know, smart listeners are going to know what incident responses I've been on. Um, but I think it's a very toughy, touchy subject. Um, and it's because the InfoSec team needs to figure out what happened so that they can tell the business what happened and then what the risk is and exposure, how many millions of records, how long were they in. And sometimes that can take days, weeks, months. Um, and then by the time you do want to disclose, how are you going to, you know, PR companies get hired, um, you know, websites have to get put up and a lot of people rush to do that. And it shows sometimes, uh, I think a good example, uh, or maybe a, ba a bad example, but it's a bold move is what ShareFile did with its passwords. That was a very bold move. Um, I think communication could have been better, but they did something that no one else has done. They said, hey, we're done with credential harvesting. So we decided we're going to reset all these passwords. It wasn't a big deal. Was it a black eye? I think so. Uh, but they did something. Uh, and then I think about like Marriott and Equifax and how they prolonged their report and their disclosure because they were finding out how long this attack had been going on and persistency and how bad it really was. And if it's a public company, you know, your number one concern is the shareholders and the number two concern is your customers. And it makes it very, very difficult. So I don't think there is a right answer. Uh, I think every single time I see a breach, I feel bad for the IT team uh, because I know in some cases it may have just been sheer funding, manpower, things like that, that have limited them from doing what they could have done. Um, and then I feel bad for the business as a whole because it's just, you know, in this digital age, bad things proliferate so quickly. Uh, if you saw that CenturyLink outage uh, with 911 kind of sprinkled all over the U.S., you know, that's no good for them. And it was supposedly just an IT kind of everyone, I hate the term, but they called it a glitch even in their press report. Um, where to me, I wish they would have just said BGP peering problems or something like that. Um, but getting it right is very hard. I think the key is you have to communicate to your customers. Um, but the problem they have is the news is if they said, Hey, we have detected a breach. We're investigating further. Everybody would be on them left and right to get the details of the story. And that is where it kind of falls apart a little bit. So I don't think there's a perfect way. It's just communication. Well, I bet after listening to this episode, a lot of folks out there will love to have somebody like yourself come in, do an audit or pen testing. 
and get outlines of how to improve. But then there's going to be a lot of people who may feel overwhelmed about the potential amount of work that may, they may have to take on as a result. Is there anything you would say to those who may be apprehensive of turning over that rock? Yeah, I, I would suggest turning the rock over. You know, light alone uh, to those problems are going to scare away a lot of spiders, snakes, and bugs. Um, and then you might still have to get some elbow grease to actually clean the rock uh, from all the stuff that it's been sitting in and messing with. But reducing risk is the name of the game. Uh, and that's probably more practical security than anything else. And if there was a hundred things you could do to lock it down, 50 of them are going to be very quick and you can get done this month. You know, 20 or 30 more may take a couple months. And then the last 20 or 30 could take months to years. Right. Um, and I would just highly encourage everyone to take the steps that they can clone a user account, log in and see what you can do. Um, and you know, if we're picking fruit uh, of trying to get the easy things, get it, you get all the low hanging stuff first, uh, get the things, you know, log in as that user, see what they can do, see the menus and things they can click on. And so how can I hide that? How can I hide that? Um, and you'd be surprised how much you can get done without anyone noticing, but make sure you test everything. Um, but it's worth turning the stone over and trying to shed some light on that security weaknesses. So you um, mentioned, go ahead. Sorry, yeah, I was just going to kind of as a follow-up to some of the other stuff that we talked about already. Uh, you had mentioned that obviously social engineering is the most effective uh, means of exploitation. And it's often said that the users are the main security risk in any company. Are there any tips you can give to just general IT workers that they may not see in their typical security compliance training. Yep. Yep. I agree. I mean, training is key. Um, hacking from the outside with exploits and, you know, all the fancy nerdy things that you think you can do, you know, that's, that can be very hard. Sending a phishing email is way easier, right? And it gets you the same result. So having, I think one thing that a lot of big organizations struggle with is that they just have to do like the computer based training. I suggest in small groups breaking up and getting people out there and getting a volunteer from your group, maybe even a fellow nerd, and kind of hacking them a little bit and showing social engineering as it works and how much publicly identifiable information there is about you and your job. And let's go ahead and look at some hash passwords from a couple people. Uh, that are out like on dhash.com and be able to use everyone as an example, as a learning experience. Because I think one thing that's kind of helped the cybersecurity world in general is more and more people are affected by identity theft and fraud and gift card fraud and things like that, which have been real big this season uh, and ransomware. Everyone kind of knows somebody that's been affected. So I think People are a little bit more receptive, but I think the social engineering part of things is the probably the blind side that people don't really expect that someone would call and just try to get information from them and then call the other person and get other information and then find out that Susie's off, then show up in the front door and say, hey, I'm here to see Susie. Oh, she's off. I just got to drop this off at her desk. Oh, okay. You know. Uh, so training is what you got to do. And I think getting real life training and finding some volunteers in your organization 
you can have a you can have a fun time. Uh, it can be sometimes a little embarrassing, but uh, I think that's part of it. You don't want to be reusing passwords, and you know something I find on dhash.com should not let me log into your environment. Yeah, so you talked about LinkedIn a little bit earlier, and just throughout the conversation, one of my thoughts was, "Oh my God, I feel so exposed. I better go change all of my passwords right away." Um, but on the LinkedIn example, I feel like I should probably remove my current employer from my LinkedIn profile because that could be used for social engineering purposes. I guess for not just IT people, but just like regular Joe or Jane, do you have any tips maybe like remove your current employer from LinkedIn that are just like easy to do practical tips? Yep. Yep. I think the real quick though, and just to add to not just LinkedIn, like any social media, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, but I think LinkedIn and Facebook are the two biggest ones that could probably get you get, get you in, into trouble. Totally. Yeah, I mean, because that's, that's where everyone's, you know, kind of pillaging from. There's lots of people that scrape this stuff. But, you know, for the everyday IT admin, my number one advice is not to be password reusing anything, right? There should be a unique password for all the things. Now, can that be annoying? Yes. But that's your best defense, especially with the type of attacks that happen all the time. Uh, thinking twice, clicking once when you get an email or a browser link. Don't just click in there and hope for the best. And go Leroy Jenkins when you click on the link and hope you know, and just see what happens. Um, I think the next thing would be uh, privileged access. That's what I see a lot of. Um, it's probably one of the number one findings and it's all the time is a Citrix admin being a domain admin. There's kind of, there's no need for it. There's no need for a Citrix admin to be a domain admin. Um, everywhere that that person logs in is leaving a hash and that hash can be exploited so that someone else can become a domain admin just like you. And you don't need that type. You just need local administrator access to each one of those servers in many cases, sometimes even less than that if you're really going all the way down. Um, so password reuse, got to fix that. Uh, too much elevated access, got to fix that. You don't need to be domain admin. Um, and then making sure you pay attention on every single thing you click. Um, and do a self-audit of yourself, you know. Uh, and, you know, one thing that I was at Phoenix uh, talking at the user group there, and one of the things I talked about there was is that anything that has any money associated to you personally Make sure no one ever emails you on that email address. Go to Gmail, go to Microsoft, whatever, go to someplace, um, and just hit the keyboard a couple times and make a random email address. Keep that password manager, keep it strong, change it on a regular basis, and use that for banking, shopping, things that can actually hurt you. And if you take kind of those four or five principles there and you apply that to your IT world, service accounts don't have passwords that are 12 years old, right? Seven years old, two years old. Change these things on a regular basis. Um, a lot of these things translate to your professional life. So I would say if you can help people secure their personal life, it, it will bleed over. So regarding personal life, you mentioned like password reuse. Um, it's become quite popular for people to use these like USB, I think RFID um, tools or products 
for passing through. Uh, there's MFA products like uh, Okta that are becoming quite popular. Our Duo had a version that was available for personal use. But then also uh, browsers like Safari uh, will offer a password suggestion and then save that password. Uh, do you have any recommendations or concerns with that type of, I guess, yeah. pass through and the MFA and for just yeah. like saving passwords encrypted, yeah. like in key pass yeah. even. Totally. Yeah. So uh, we'll take it, we'll digest it a little bit. So if we're talking about like a VDI deployment, MFA, and you have external access is your number one defense. It doesn't mean that it's perfect because I might still be able to call up somebody and say, Hey George, uh, are you having a problem with your RSA token? No. Okay. Well, Hey, we've been having reports. Can you go into this login page real quick and go ahead and enter this? Tell me what your secure ID token says or what your duo passcode says. Uh, or can you accept that push notification? We're testing something. So it's not like it's it's infallible, right? Um, but MFA is your best defense. It makes it very difficult for people. And one thing to remember is don't just MFA your VDI deployment. MFA all external access. Even some of your third-party things like your Salesforce and stuff like that if you're, you're subscribing to cloud-hosted solutions. Um, and then from there, when it comes to keeping your passwords, uh, Firefox and Safari and, you know, iTunes and, you know, key, keychain and all that, you know, I think they all do a good job. Um, I would recommend still going for a real password manager. Don't use any, you know, there are some that are free. Um, but make sure you're paying for the service so that you're not just the product, uh, because they're just taking all your data and analytics and just selling you. Um, but get a password manager, um, you know, First pass, first password, key pass, last pass are probably some of the best examples out there. And then there's lots of enterprise solutions that you should get for IT. Um, some of them are very expensive. Some of them are very cheap. Uh, your mileage will vary. Um, but I think you're, you definitely struck. Authentication is the key to breaking in, literally. So adding multi-factor should, should be your normal process. And there's so many great vendors and free solutions uh, and almost free solutions that you should really put, take the time and look at it. So we mentioned uh, earlier um, about you might have a book in the works. Um, can you give us any insight on that? Like tell us about it and possibly when it could come out. Yep. Yep. So I was hoping it was going to come out uh, before this weekend, uh, before Citrix summit. But uh, as I kept adding stuff, it kept growing and uh, since I'm kind of like a documentation journey junkie, uh, I wanted to make this the easiest book to actually walk people through. So right now I'm at 16 chapters uh, of all the process, the step-by-step -step you should do for group policy, multi-factor, you know, application whitelisting, uh, NTFS permissions, you know, um, and then lots of other things that we'll get into, but I, I want to make sure it was practical. I didn't want it to just be for security nerds. I wanted it to be something that a VDI person, um, a Citrix desktop engineer can pick up and go through their deployment because there's a lot of self-help checks in there um, and be able to help make an impact and make your deployment more secure. That's my goal. So it's going to be out bef before Synergy. Uh, so that, that is for sure. I've set the date. I've got all the stuff formatted and, uh, I've still got to chug away and I've learned a lot as I've 
actually put my thoughts to paper instead of just putting it in PowerPoints and funny memes. Uh, so it's been very good for me. I've learned a lot while writing it. Um, but yeah, the VDI lockdown guide will be uh, out here in May. Uh, that's great news because, you know, just doing stuff, just watching your presentations and doing a couple with you and you're just talking with you and some of the stuff you put on your, on your blog stuff and too, it, it's great that you're going to put a, a consolidated resource for that. And I look forward to it. Um, just give us posters here at Frontline Chatter. We'll be happy to spread the word on that book as well. Perfect. If I can ask maybe one more question, that's a little bit of an aside from what we've been talking about. I was wondering, is there anything in tech outside of your, your day job that excites you? And also, outside of work, what are you passionate about? Yeah, um, I think uh, I love being a dad the most. And my daddy duties with, uh, you know, Cub Scouts uh, and then karaoke tech support for my daughter and doing all the things with them uh, is, is so much fun. And I, I like building things. Sometimes I never have enough time because I'm running around everywhere. So I've got a batch cloner that I need to finish. I got to do some more soldering. Um, and that'll help me steal people's badges uh, into, pe into buildings further away so I don't have to get as close to them. So that'll be fun. Um, and then I'm definitely like Ricky Bobby, I always want to go fast. Uh, so I have like a BMW E30 race car. So if there's any car people out there, it's a super fun car to uh, go to track days and do things with because you can pass a big American V8 in the corners, but then you get passed again in the straightaway. Um, and I think when I think about what I'm passionate about um, outside of like security and EOC, it's probably uh, travel with my family. Uh, we've kind of made a pact at our house to buy, you know, mo you know, buy travel and moments instead of buying things, you know? And so my wife does a blog momentmom.com where she writes a lot about Disney and some of our adventures uh, to help people. And we do Disney a lot. And uh, my favorite thing about Disney and travel is taking your kids uh, and letting them have these experiences for the first time. And it may be experiences that you never got to do when you were little. Um, and it's so fun to just see it. And uh, sometimes it's fun to see the joy in their eyes, but also the terror. Like if they're on a ride for the first time and they didn't know it was that fast. I've got some epic shots of fast pass, you know, pictures from Disney of both kids terrified at certain things. And then, you know, two rides later, they're smiling ear to ear. Uh, so we do a lot of traveling and um, it keeps it very fun. Uh, th that's really great stuff. And I like how you're, you're you know, you're doing moments instead of things. Um, I had a laugh, you know, about the, the scare the first time, the look on their face, the reaction, because um, I did have some, here, some of that stuff here too with my kids as well. Um, Roy had a question about vdisecurity.org. Yep. Yeah, um, less of a question, but you mentioned your wife has a blog, momentmom.com. I also wanted to make sure that we mentioned that you've also got a really great blog that Jerry and talked a little bit about earlier. You were posting these really great security tips that it sounds like you're going to consolidate and put into a more long-form book. But that site is vdisecurity.org. And if you don't bookmark it, if you don't already have a bookmark, you should bookmark it now. Yeah, thank you. No, it's a it's a good place, and you know the book has kind of slowed me down on lots of other blogging uh, because I, I I've kind of got a singular focus right now is to get that thing done and get it out to help more people uh, secure their environment. So there'll be less blog and more book, hopefully. Yeah. So um, we're gonna, I know you have a meeting coming up, so 
also, we, you know, thank you so much for, for, uh, for coming on today and talking with us. Um, you can find Patrick, you know, Roy mentioned vdisecurity.org. Um, there's also patrickcobalt.com. On Twitter, you can find him at VDI Hacker. Um, so thank you, Patrick, very much for coming on today and spending some time with us. You know, I could probably do, or I say I, we could probably do a whole podcast just about your stories of getting caught, you know, in your adventures of, of uh, social engineering and pen testing. Um, but definitely keep us posted about your book. Um, we'd love to help you spread the word on that when that comes out. Perfect. Thank you guys so much. And, uh, you know, I'm honored to be on here with you guys and y'all have a great weekend. Thank you. And also too, thank you again uh, to Rory Monahan as always for coming on and being one of our guest co-hosts. Um, you can find him at Roymon, also um, Roymon.com where you can also check out his five bites podcast as well, which we hear in frontline chatter, you know, we endorse. So, in the blog um, for this, we'll have the links to everything too as well when this comes out. So thank you for listening to the Frontline Chatter podcast and we'll talk to you next time. Mm -hmm.